0: Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. We are going to start a new series in conjunction with this. And I want to ask you a question. What lengths would you go to to keep someone from making a mistake. What lengths would you go to to keep someone from making a mistake? And you're like, well, I don't have enough information. Right? You're, you're, how far you would go to keep someone from making a mistake probably has a lot to do with you know, what's your relationship with this person like, right? like is it my kid? You know, like My kid is going to make a mistake. And some of us, you, know, you have kids and you're like, well, the best way for them to learn is to make a small mistake now. And so we let them make a mistake, so maybe that's one way. Or we would consider like, hey, what's the impact of this mistake on me, right? You know, uh, how far would you go to keep your financial advisor from making a mistake that ruins you, right? Like, It may depend on the impact on you, or uh, it may depend on how big of a deal the mistake is. Right, like If it's a little thing, it's not that big of a deal, you let somebody make a mistake. Let me tell you a story of intervening in, and it's recent, it was yesterday, literally yesterday, intervening uh, in, in trying to keep someone from making a mistake. So we were at Camp Harmony, and we're doing the Alpha weekend, and, and I'm sitting, uh, having a conversation with Aaron and Jeremy, and breakfast is getting ready to be made. Uh, and so there's a table and you know we brought two coffee pots, actually one was already there. So there's two coffee pots sitting on the table to you know, make sure that everybody has enough coffee. And I see my wife carrying a toaster, you know one of those four-hole toasters? Carrying a toaster and clearing space on the table to put the toaster that was also going to be plugged into the one extension cord. And everybody who has electrical knowledge just like this ain't gonna work, right? <laughs> Gary's already shaking his head, <laughs> don't do that. If you have any electrical ability, you kind of know something bad might happen, right? The best case scenario is that we're going to plug two coffee pots and a toaster into this little rinky-dink extension cord, and the best thing that's going to happen is it's going to blow a circuit breaker. Like, that's the best thing that's going to happen, right? The worst thing that's going to happen is we're going to burn down this cabin (laughs) that we rented, right? And so I'm mid-conversation, and all of this stuff goes through my head. I'm, like, watching this happen, and, and I have this thought. Like, I've seen, you know, they're, they're in the middle of some electrical work. Like, there was, like, a I don't know if it was a light or something that had been removed, but there were wires still. Did you guys see it? The guys that were in the guys side saw it. Uh, there's wires that are still, like, they, they were in the middle of some electrical work. And so I'm starting to wonder, like, okay, is this building, you know, mid-electrical work? Is it, like not to code? Is it, like, who knows, right? And then I start going through my head, I'm like, if she pops a breaker, I haven't even seen a breaker box in this place. So I don't even know where we'll go to reset this breaker. So in the middle of this conversation, I said, hold on a minute. Hey, we probably don't want to plug three things into that cord. And Jerry's like, oh, okay. She takes the toaster back over. Right. I didn't jump over a table and like, you know, smack it out of her hand or something, but like, I intervened because there was some, like, uh, some consequence potentially, right? Does this make sense? Right? That, that there's a certain level of intervention. What, what about much bigger issues? What level of intervention would you go or would be appropriate for eternal issues? Like, if you were aware of something that had eternal significance what level of intervention would you go to? How far would you jump in to keep a mistake from happening? One of the things that I believe carries eternal significance is the way the church interacts with justice and mercy and marginalized people. I think it has eternal significance. And as a pastor, I find myself increasingly like with this disconcerted feeling that as the church we've relegated these things to the political arena we've decided that nonprofits can deal with you know justice issues and mercy issues that we're really in the business of saving souls and so we've just sort of turned our hands out toward you know all of these issues and as a pastor i find myself thinking like this there's a cliff over there, and we as the church in America are running really fast toward it, and I don't think you guys know it's there. What level of intervention is appropriate? Like, what level of, remember, remember you guys love me, you, you gave me gifts. <laughs> what level of intervention is appropriate when we're running headlong to what I think is our destruction. What's appropriate? How far should I go to call to our attention the the error that I think has eternal significance? What's appropriate? And that's the point of this series that we're starting. I'm beginning this series called Living on the Edge. And it's, it's taking a look about what God has to say about justice, about mercy, about marginalized people and the powerless and our role as followers of Jesus. And today what I want to show you is that care for the marginalized is central to the gospel. Care for the powerless is central to the gospel. And so I'm calling this message today, Don't Fall Off the Edge. Don't fall off the edge. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to look at God's word. So, Lord, I do just thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for all the things that you're doing in and through this church, for all the ways, God, that you're calling people to yourself, for all the ways that you're turning us into the community, Lord, to see your kingdom come. And so, Lord, I do pray that as we open your word, Lord, we would hear it that our hearts would be inclined toward you. I pray, Lord, that you would put power on this message. Holy Spirit, would you fill me and speak through me? In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Okay, if you want to, you can, if you want to, it's be on the screen if you don't. Uh, Matthew 25 is where we're going to be, Matthew chapter 25. And while you're turning there, uh, I, I want to just sort of name some of the dynamics that may be in play. Just take a second, you know, while you're flipping there, because you, know, you, guys, you guys understand the value of an analog Bible, and it takes a little bit of time to get there. While you're flipping there, let me just sort of name some of the dynamics that come up when we talk about justice and we talk about mercy, we talk about powerless people and marginalized people. There's a number, any number of dynamics that, that come up because of the way our society has, has, has thought about these things we've actually been shaped to think about these things in a certain way, whether we know it or not. And I realized as I was thinking about it, that talking about justice and mercy with you all is a lot like having the talk with your kids. You guys know what I mean? The talk? Did anybody not have the talk when you were growing up? I mean, I'm the only one that didn't get the talk, Right? As a Christian, you have the talk with your children. Some of you are like, is he really going to do this? Yeah. As a Christian, you have the talk with your kids because what you want to do, because you know there is a biblical way that God has designed sex to function, right? There's a biblical way that God has designed this to work, and you want, before your kids are talked to by other people about it with competing agendas, you want to lay a biblical foundation. Right? Make sense? Tracking with me? You want to lay a biblical foundation because you know that people are going to come and people are going to talk to your kids and they have different agendas and they have different ideas about the purpose and the function of it. Right? So we want to set a good foundation because of this little thing. If you're a teacher, you probably know this word, the law of primacy. Know the word primacy? What you've learned first, you learn best. So the foundation that gets built becomes the lens through which you evaluate everything past that. So it's really hard. If, you, if you've ever had interactions with kids who have grown up and they get to be in their uh, teenage and 20s and even beyond that, who have a bad foundation, it's really hard to fix that for the same reason. So the reason this is like... So we, we, we have this conversation with our kids because we don't want to undo something. We want to lay a foundation, Right? And it's very similar when it comes to justice and mercy and marginalized people. The problem for me as a pastor is that whether you know it or not, most of you have had a foundation laid by something other than Scripture. Like most of us, the bulk of the way we think about justice and mercy and marginalized people comes primarily from other sources. Some of you maybe have a really good biblical foundation for it. But statistically speaking, more of us have had a foundation built by whatever hashtag movement we like to follow on social media. And I don't say that as any sort of like, you're wrong, you're bad. I'm just saying what is. Or we've had our foundation around these things laid by whatever cable news channel we watch. Again, not good, not bad. I'm just saying it is what is. The way you think about these things is formed by other sources. And so the challenge for me as a pastor to stand here and tell you about what the Bible has to say about justice and mercy is your temptation, because of anxiety and the way these things work, your temptation is going to be to hear me through the lens of, is he right or is he wrong based on the foundation that was built in my life? That's just what will happen. So I'm going to talk about this, and depending on what foundation has been laid, you're going to weigh things through. Do I like that or don't I like that? Is that right or is that wrong? Is this good or is this bad? And the lens you're going to use is the lens of the foundation that was built for you. Make sense? So here's the deal. I want to challenge you as we go through this series to listen in a different way. I want to challenge you to listen in this way. If what I'm saying is correct, what does that mean for my relationship with God? If I'm right about what I'm saying, what would that mean for my relationship with God? And I'm not saying you have to take me, you know, lock, stock, and barrel and just believe that everything I say is right. You can check it. You all, I mean, if you don't have a Bible, we can get you one. You you all have your phones out. You all have, you know, you have the Bible. You can check it for yourself. But what I want you to listen is through the grid of if he's right, what does that mean for me? Because I want you to hear my heart. My heart is this. I feel like I have watched the church run headlong toward a cliff. And I find myself going, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. This is destructive for us as a people. This is destructive. Please, please don't. That's, that's my heart in this. My heart in this is that I want to see you fully formed into the image of Jesus. I want to see you be people who are fully formed by the values of the kingdom and through whom God could bring the kingdom into all the places that you find yourself. I have no political agenda but the kingdom of God. Okay? That's a really, really big disclaimer. But I think it will be helpful. You ready for this? Matthew chapter 25? Everybody's like, "All right, all right. I have, I'm calm. I'll be okay." We're gonna look at verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31 says this: When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a, sep- a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, when, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, the righteous to eternal life. I think when we read this passage, it all makes us, it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. If it doesn't make you uncomfortable, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Because what it sounds like Jesus is saying is, yeah, it was grace, but if you don't do enough works, you're out, right? If you don't do enough good things for enough poor people, I'm sorry, The rules of the game have changed. Isn't that what it sort of sounds like is happening? It's like, wait a minute. He's sorting the sheep from the goats, and he's saying, okay, you all did some things. You get eternal life. You all didn't do the things that I wanted you to do. You don't get eternal life. And it feels like the nature of of the judgment has changed, right? It's like, this doesn't really make sense to me. And then depending on your understanding of the Christian faith, this probably will deeply disturb you. Because I think if you, if you look at it, you start to ask the question, what about grace? Like, what about grace? I thought this was grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone. I thought I was set for heaven because I believed in Jesus, and yet it seems like Jesus has changed the game. You know what happened to that? I didn't think I had to do anything to be saved. And it could be really, really disturbing to you. But this passage could be disturbing on the other side too. This passage often gets used to make the case like, see, you don't actually have to believe in Jesus. Just do a lot of good things for a lot of poor people. That's all it takes to be saved. Just, you don't have to turn from your sin. You don't have to repent and be forgiven. You don't have to receive Jesus as king just do a lot of really good things for a lot of marginalized people. See, that's what Jesus is saying, and that's the argument that gets made. How are we supposed to make sense of this? As I spent much of our last series trying to explain to you, it all rises and falls on what you believe the gospel is. And I've unpacked this, you know, in the last four weeks, a number of times, so I'm not going like to spend you know, the next 25 minutes trying to explain this, but to, to catch you up, I want to sort of make, uh, you can listen to this actually, if you're like, hey, I, I sort of want him to explain this. Our podcast has like all of the past messages, so you can go back, especially the first one and the third one from the last series, where I spent a lot of time talking about that. But let me catch you up just a little bit, if you're not sure, if this is like, hey, I'm, I'm just dipping into it to hear this, and I'm not really sure what you're talking about, The gospel, as Jesus preached it, is the kingdom of God has come. All through the Old Testament, they were waiting for a Messiah to come who's going to make all things new again. And specifically, they were thinking that the Messiah is going to restore Israel. You know, like, so we're waiting for this Messiah who's going to restore Israel. And the key for this passage, if you want to understand it is that one of the big things that the Messiah was going to do was provide a reversal of fortunes for the marginalized. A reversal of fortunes for those who were powerless and those who, who had no status. Isaiah chapter 61 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Here's the expectation. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release of darkness from, uh, from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So when Jesus shows up, like that's the expectation. When Jesus shows up and he says, the kingdom of God has come, That's the good news. That's the gospel. The kingdom of God has come. God is beginning to rule and reign in this world now. And that means something for those who are marginalized. Jesus says, I am the Messiah. I am the one who is going to bring about the change of status for those who are powerless and marginalized. So we take that understanding to our passage. Take a look at verse 35. What we're going to see... Is that we have the key now to understand what Jesus is saying. Verse 35 says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. In this passage, Jesus equates himself and serving himself with serving the least. If you want to serve Jesus, you serve the least. And what's essential to note here is that Jesus is raising these people who have no status extremely high. Like, extremely high. These are people that cannot provide anything for you. They can never pay you back. And yet Jesus says, these people are really, really important. And these are not peripheral issues. This is the other thing that Jesus says. These are not peripheral issues. You know, some of you have this, you're very mercy-hearted, right? Every, everything in the world breaks your heart. And I think, that's, I think that's a grace. I have a hard time. I'm growing. But everything in the world breaks your heart. This is not for just the mercy hearted. Jesus says, this is important for everyone who would follow me. These are foundational pillars in building the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God doesn't get built by stepping on the powerless. The kingdom of God doesn't get built on the backs of those who can't earn any money. There's no place in the kingdom of God where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. One of the most twisted things in the church today is we think that this is a way for us to get wealthy and rich, that somehow the kingdom is, is there for us to be wealthy and powerful people. But if we get wealthy and powerful in the kingdom, the whole point is to give it a way to raise up the powerless. That's the whole point. You have to exclude so much of scripture to get to this idea that God's goal is to make you wealthy and powerful. You have to, like, overlook it and pretend it doesn't exist and cherry-pick a few pet verses here in order to build this theology that says somehow God's goal is to make you wealthy and powerful. Remember, you guys love me and you gave me gifts. Does that make sense to you? Like, that's a twisted thing that we believe in the church today is somehow that, that God's whole purpose is to make us special, special people who have all the money and all the power. I think it's a lie from the pit of hell that, that we're supposed to achieve all of the most pow- powerful places in every seat in the world that if Christians just occupy all the power, somehow we won't be contain- uh, contaminated by sin and make a twisted mess of it. And I love you guys. I just need you to know that. When you hear that, It's twisted. The one to get famous about this is Jesus. It's not us. The one to get powerful here is Jesus. It's not us. The kingdom of God comes as we bow before the king. Remember, you love me. You gave me gifts. And I love you guys. That's why I'm saying this. And in, in short, the care for the powerless and the marginalized actually is central to the gospel of the kingdom. It's central. If we are people who have received the forgiveness of God through the death of Jesus, and we've made entrance into the kingdom of God, then we are people who live by a different system of valuation. We value people differently. We understand power and, and value differently, and we're people who see the people Jesus sees. You know, Jesus over and over and over and over and over again, he says, invite all the people who have no power to your banquets. When you throw a party, don't invite the people who can pay you back. Don't invite the people who can, you know, tit for tat, they can give you a, they can give you some power, they can give you some status. Don't invite them. Invite the people who can't pay you back. I mean, this is not like a way up, it's a way down. That's the way of the kingdom. It's upside down. And it's right here that we have to pay attention to our own anxieties. Can we take just a temperature check just for a second? Are we anxious? Like a little bit of boiling up, a little bit like, I keep forgetting that I love you and I gave you gifts. Maybe I want them back. Because as soon as we start to engage with people of different status, people who look different than us, who are in different places, what comes rolling up is the narrative that's swirling inside of us. Do you know that? It sounds great to go feed the hungry and give a drink to the poor. When we read scripture here, and we go, oh man, that's so altruistic. And Can you imagine if we all just did that? It's a different thing to have somebody sitting outside of the place that you're going to go shopping and begging for food. Because what happens when you encounter that person is all the stories inside of you, all the things, all the foundation that was laid inside of you comes boiling to the surface. And you start to go, I don't know if they're actually hungry. If I give them money, what are they going to do with it? They're probably going to buy drugs, right? I'm just saying, these are the, it's not just you, it's me. All those stories, how did they get there? Maybe, am I going to actually, you know, are they going to do the things that they say they're going to do with this money? all those stories, and we start seeing people through the lens of our own narrative and not the lens of Scripture. Right? It sounds great to, like, welcome the stranger, doesn't it? It Sounds so nice. You're welcome here. We welcome the stranger, but it's much harder out there. See, the meaning of the word stranger here literally means foreigner or immigrant. Some translations translate that word immigrant. And now we say, welcome the immigrant, and everybody goes, wait, that's a political statement. What kind of political statement are you trying to make? None. I'm just saying Jesus says, welcome the immigrant. And all those stories come swirling to the top, don't they? Well, how did they get here? Did they cross the border legally or illegally? Right? All those stories. And I'm going to talk a little bit about a story, not today, but in the future of somebody that really matters to you. But all of these narratives, all these stories come to the surface, and we see the immigrant through the lens of whatever foundation has been built. Do you see this? Do you understand this? I I mean, I say immigrant, and something pops to the surface, doesn't it? I mean, talk about racial reconciliation, same difference, right? As soon as we start talking about anything that's of people who are different... The challenge is to see them the way Jesus sees them because what happens is the foundation that was built in our lives, which may or may not have been scripture, boils to the surface. All I'm trying to get you to see is that it's really, really hard to do the things that Jesus says. It's really hard to do the things that Jesus says because we're not like all those people. And unless we've been completely formed by Jesus and the scriptures... What takes precedence is what makes us comfortable. Do you know that? Do you know? And I I mean, those of you who've been through Emotionally Focused will know this statement. Do you know that you all, at some level, have things about the teachings of Jesus, the clear teachings of Jesus that you will disregard to make you feel better? Do you know that? Like, we hold on to the ones that make us comfortable. The ones that we don't like, we're sort of like, well, I'll just do more of the things I like. And Jesus will, you know, he'll take that in trade. Do you know that? Like if we sat down with scripture and we just look at the clear teachings of Jesus over and over and over and over and over, what you'll discover, and it's true for all of us, I'm saying this is, it's true for me as well. It's true for all of us is that we swap the things we don't like about what Jesus says and we just read right past them. Do you know the, in the Bible the word poor and care for the poor is mentioned more than 2,000 times. How many of you knew that was like a thing? of a sudden you're like, I don't think I've read it in there that many times. But we all know, right, that there's the phrase do not fear exists how many times? 365 because there's one for every day, right? But we read right past care for the poor. It's more than 2,000 times in scripture. All I'm trying to do is get you to see that we like gloss over things because it makes us uncomfortable. And it's one of the reasons that we believe emotionally focused is so important. Because if we actually want to be people who live radically obedient lives to Jesus in the world and see the world changed, we have to be people who are willing to take stock of the narrative that's running underneath us and say, Jesus, how do you want to change this? How do you want to make us different people? How can we actually become radically obedient to you? Now, I want to momentarily relieve your anxiety thank you, finally. Look at verse 40. Verse 40 says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. In this passage, many commentators make the case that Jesus is not referring to all the poor people. Jesus is not referring to all those in prison. Jesus is not referring to all of the immigrants. He says, brothers and sisters. And the best way to understand that is to say, well, What else does Jesus refer to when he uses the phrase brothers and sisters? In Matthew, whenever Matthew writes that Jesus says, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, some of the times he's referring to his actual half-brothers, his actual family. But virtually all the rest of the times, Jesus says, my brothers or my brothers and sisters, he's referring to disciples. You're like, oh, good, good. We only have to care about the marginalized disciples make you feel better? I'm glad I could help. Glad I could help. But here's the deal. uh, What I would wonder is how well do we take care of the marginalized brothers and sisters? Like we're really honest. How many of you have visited marginalized, like in prison, disciples of Jesus? I haven't. I think we, if we really took stock before Jesus, if we were like, Jesus, here's my life, it's all on the table, what do you think, Jesus? How well do we take care of our brothers and sisters? And I would bet, if you're honest, we would go, hey, we do a better job. We do a better job with our disciple brothers and sisters who are marginalized, but maybe not a great job, but a better job, right? We take care of each other pretty well. But as we answer that question, something else becomes apparent. You know, we may begin to feel like, well, so what happens inside of you when you, when you think about that? You go, oh, I should, I'm going to make an appointment, go to the prison and find some disciples to encourage and, you know, I'm going to like get a hold of Convoy of Hope and see if they can, you know, point me in the direction of some disciples who are hungry and thirsty so that I can feed the hungry and thirsty ones. Uh, and I'm going to like, you know, reach out and see if I can like support an immigrant disciple. You're like, and, and what, what happens inside is you start going, well, okay, if Jesus says this stuff's important, you know, I want to do better, right? Is that what happens inside you? That's what happens inside me. I read this and I go, well, I can do a little, bit. He'll, I can do better, I'll do better. And we, we begin to start doing things for marginalized disciples so that we can make sure that we qualify in the sheep and not the goats, right? We can make sure that we qualify, but that's not what the passage is getting at. And this is the point that I want to make. Today. See, neither the sheep nor the goats understand that the actions they did or did not do were for Jesus. You catch that? They're both surprised when Jesus says, Hey, you did these things, and Hey, you didn't do these things. They're both stunned. Hey, when did we see you, Jesus? We didn't see you. If we had seen you, we definitely would have done it, right? If it had been you, In no way we would have missed that. We, We definitely would have done it. But Jesus is not telling us this so that we can now understand that we have to do these things to merit our place in the saved group of people. What he's saying is that those who have been saved, who have come into the kingdom of God, will live out the values of the kingdom, which is caring about justice and mercy and marginalized people, and they don't do so to prove that they're worthy of being saved. They do so because they've been saved and have lived out the values of the kingdom. Such that Jesus can say, those who take care of the least of these, clearly they're saved. They've been so formed as kingdom people. Clearly I could just take them because they live out the values of the kingdom. So when Jesus separates at the end, the proof that they're saved people is that they've been formed and shaped by the values of the kingdom. But you can't do this sort of in a, like a selective way, right? Like, let me make sure I just get the disciples. Let me make sure I just find the, the followers of Jesus. And if they're followers of Jesus, then I'm going to feed them and I'm going to give them something to drink. If they're followers of Jesus, I'll go, let me, let me go knock on Bob's door and he'll, he'll let me like, go see the prisoners. And, but only the ones who are followers of Jesus... Let me, let me talk to the immigration agencies and just make sure that I can only care for the immigrants that are disciples. You can't do it that way. Do you know that? It doesn't work that way. You see, the way it actually works is that you are so formed and shaped by the values of the kingdom that you just naturally do this with everybody. And oh, by the way, the disciples happen to get lumped in there. And when Jesus comes, he says, these people love those who are on the margin so much. It's just natural for them. And look at how they love the disciples. The ones who were in prison never were there by themselves. You care for the marginalized all the time, and in doing so, you naturally get to those who are followers of Jesus. Look at verse 34. This is the reward for living that way verse 34 says this then the king will say to those on his right come you who are blessed by my father take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world you see the eternal reward for those who live in line with the values of the kingdom the eternal reward for living in the line with the values of the kingdom now is that you get the kingdom in the future if you live as a kingdom person now it's not something else later you get more of what you've lived into If you live as someone, as a kingdom person now, you get the fullness of the kingdom later. If you're a Christian who doesn't live in line with the values of the kingdom now, what do you want later? If you don't love the marginalized now, what do you think you're going to get later? You're going to magically just wake up and one day love people who are different than you? It just doesn't work that way. I actually have to live that way now. You go, wait a minute. How does this work? How do we make this practical? How do we become kingdom people? Two ways. For Some of you, it's receiving the kingdom now. Some of you are like, I have never surrendered my life to Jesus as Lord and King. And that's not like I prayed a prayer one time and now I know I'm going to heaven. That's like I surrender. Anything I think I have, everything I bring of value and of disgust, I surrender. And Jesus, you're in charge now. And I will choose to live in alignment with the values that you have put out there. That's the first step. And for some of you, maybe that's the step today. That's like the I surrender to Jesus as Lord. He's not just my savior, he is my Lord. He's in charge. That's the first way. The second way is like it. The second way is by discipline. Everybody's like, that sounds like shredded wheat. Let me ask you this question. And the band, you guys can come up. Every week we pass the offering basket, right? Every week, we say, give generously. You guys pay attention to what we say, why? Have you ever paid attention to why? Why it is we say to do that? Because a value in the kingdom is generosity. It's a value. It's like who kingdom people are. They're just generous people. And when you come into the kingdom as a greedy person who just wants what I can get and who holds really tightly to everything that I have, And yet you come into the kingdom and Jesus says, hey, that's not how we do things here. Your hand is really, really gripped tight on that money. That's not how we do things in the kingdom. And so Jesus says, give it. The way you stop being greedy and live into the values of the kingdom is you give. It's a discipline. It's awful when you first start it, right? Because most of us have budgeted all the money that we get for all the things that we want to do. This is terrible, you know? The very first time you go to do that, you're like, man, I got to stop, like, I can't have like 35 streaming services. I have to have like 32. Peacock. Pigeon is what you said the other day. It's probably one. Right? And you're like, I don't want to restrain myself. And yet, over time, when I open my hand... I become a kingdom person who's generous, right? It's just a discipline. All of us expect that we're going to pop into the kingdom and I'm generous now, right? Or we know, hey, you know, we really want to be conformed into the image of Christ. I'd love to know what God's heart is about things. I know the Bible says a lot about that, but I don't like reading. And I definitely don't like reading the Bible. And yet I understand that that's how I might grow in understanding who God is. We don't Magically like reading the Bible. Do you know that? It's discipline. It's just discipline. You say, I'm going to choose to live this way until it's formed inside of me. So when it comes to living with people who are marginalized and powerless and seeing them and, and endeavoring to do justice and endeavoring to do mercy in line with the kingdom, the way forward is discipline. Discipline. You're not going to just, I love people who look different than me. I see all the poor people. I gave my life to Jesus. I see them all now. No, it's discipline. It's getting up and choosing to take steps toward becoming the kingdom person. That Jesus would say, you did this for the least of these. You did it for me. I've watched you live your life. And you live as a kingdom person. We've begun this series with the intention to hopefully open our eyes increasingly to the things that I think are very central to the gospel that we've chosen a lot of times to put on the edge. If you're interested in doing more of that, I'm going to invite a couple of you to, those of you who are here to pray, you can go to the back if you're, you've been asked to pray for people. The first way that you can engage this is, I've got a, a QR code up here, probably, yep. That we were, a year ago, a little year and a half ago, I created a team called a Justice and Mercy Team, and a number of you were part of that at the very beginning. Uh, Jen Harry is in charge of this, and we're, we're trying to give you steps that you can take. It's like, hey, I'm not, I'm not naturally a Justice and Mercy person. So with Conway of Hope, we can start taking steps to train ourselves to be those kinds of people. This QR code will take you to a survey. And what it, all the survey is just your information, like your name and phone, uh, phone number. I don't even think my phone number's in it. I think it's just email. And then there's a whole bunch of things that may be potential interest areas for you. Jen Harry is the one who will get those. You guys don't, you can pop that picture up as well. You guys know Jen? And that's all her contact info. Not all of it, enough of it. Um, but Jen, Jen Harry is who will get that, and in a week and a half, for those of you who, who engage that, she's going to reach out to you over the next week or so, and she, she'll just begin to ask you, like, hey, what kind of engagement would you like to pursue? And our goal is to try to give you ways to be formed into kingdom people. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release His kingdom in and through you, today, for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.